It's the last episode of season two of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast, so we bring you the gifts of all gifts. For our finale, we talk to National Book Award finalist Robert Jones Jr., author of the New York Times bestseller, The Prophets. This week's interview was recorded live by the Orange County Library System in Orlando, Florida. We sit down with Robert to discuss how after 14 years, he completed one of the most beautiful love stories and necessary novels of our generation. As Marlon James said, The Prophets is what the American novel is, should do, and can be. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Join us for this wonderful episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. The Vulgar Geniuses have dedicated the past two years to shining a bright light on by POC authors. We want to grow and make our shared love for community, art, and literature shine in the city beautiful. And that's where you come in. In our hope to bring our vision to fruition, we will need help raising $15,000 to fund these projects. $5,000 will go to help us improve our podcast, create book kits for Unleash the Genius Reading Initiative, and help us go to the FLA and ALA conferences. The remaining $10,000 will help bring our art and lit festival to a space like the Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center. We have big plans for 2022, and it all starts with you. Orlando has been progressing toward bringing us amazing artists and creating literary spaces throughout the city. We want to add the Vulgar Geniuses name to the conversation and helping to define not just Orlando, but the South as another literary and artistic hub of the country. You have the opportunity to help us bring this dream to a reality. No amount is too small. To make a donation, go to www.vulgargeniuses.com and click on the donate button. Thank you to Orange County Library Systems. We're so happy to have you all here with us on this special occasion of our season finale uh, a podcast episode featuring none other than Robert Jones Jr. Um, just for you all to know that I am Veronica and this is I am Denny and uh yeah so we're gonna jump right on into it let's bring our guest on we have Robert Jones Jr. who is a writer from New York City he received his BFA in creative writing and MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College he has written for numerous publications including the New York Times Essence the Paris Review he is the creator and curator of the social justice social media community, Son of Baldwin, which has over 275,000 members across platforms. He is a New York Times bestselling author, a 2021 National Book Award finalist, and The Prophets is his debut novel. Welcome to our show. How you doing, Mr. Jones? My sisters, my sisters, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for this conversation, truly. And and we are, um, as we discussed before, um, we are eternally grateful for having you come on our show today. Um, for everyone that is watching, this is a first for us to have a live viewing um, of, a, of a recording with our, our author. This is a treasure, treasure moment because... Uh, Mr. Robert Jones Jr. is is going to be talked about for the rest of eternity. And we are so grateful to um, be able to say that we spoke to you today and we hope that you have a good time. So let's Let's jump on into it, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So uh, Disha Filia, she is your good friend, your girl. We love her. That's our heart. 
Um, for those who have not heard of her, uh, she is the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. And her book, it starts off with her first story. It's a collection of short stories. And it starts off with a story talking about two women who are in a relationship. Um, and so when we interviewed her at the start of the year, she said that she wanted people to know what they were getting into and in reading this book. And you introduced us to Isaiah and Samuel having this beautiful, tender, raw moment in the barn. Talk to us about how paramount this moment is for the reader to see love shown in this way, the care in which you use to reveal this private moment and how important it is to have their love at the center of the book. Thank you for those questions. Um, it was absolutely paramount that um, Samuel and Isaiah's love be the centerpiece of this novel, given what Black queer people um, experience in this world in terms of our love, our sex, our relationships, um, even our friendships are seen as inherently dirty or perverted or um, ungodly, uh, demonic. And I wanted to specifically push back against that idea and more than push back against it, reveal its origins, which are in white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and not, as some people mistakenly believe, in um, some sort of um, Africanness or Blackness. That is not where we get homophobia and transphobia. We get it completely from Europe. Mm -hmm. So when we um, meet Samuel and Isaiah, I want you, I want readers to understand from the very beginning, these are two young men who are, yes, they're enslaved, but that's secondary to the fact that one of the ways is in their love for one another. And I wanted to show that right up front. I wanted to um, make sure that the reader understood from the very beginning, this is not something that is, um, in a sense, um, shameful or um, unworthy. This is two people who have loved each other from the beginning, discovering each other in ways in which make them feel freer and more loving. That moment, um, it was just so it was just so special to read because. It, it goes to show you how important it is to see those moments when you have uh, queer characters showing their love for each other and just being able to like have that moment and it be something so private that even when reading it, you're just like, oh, I can't believe that we get to watch this happen. Um, so so thank you for including that in the book. And even the metaphor of like, like darkness being like, you know, being in, inside the barn and people not knowing anything and it's just the lamp that lighting it it's kind of like you're in in the secret that you know it's it's like it's up to you if you want to share it or not mm -hmm. but you're privy to it and you feel kind of like oh what do I do with this information like uh. it's, it's a very heavy like responsibility to the reader and also kind of like that light being like a, I, I feel it maybe like a representation of the love that they have that shines mm -hmm. eternally. I don't know if that was your intention, but that's what. It, it was not my intention, but, you know, my intention is almost irrelevant. Um, I, as an artist, of course, have intentions, but I can't expect that my intentions will be shared by everyone who reads this book because what we, we all bring ourselves to all art. Right. Um, we we either see or don't see ourselves in it. We experience it in ways that are shaped by our own life experiences. So I'm actually kind of thankful that you interpreted and in interpreted it in that way. So yes. So we go to um, one of the people that you've thanked in your acknowledgement. Um, Malcolm X is quoted uh, for saying that the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. In this novel, not only do you write about this fact, but you also show how important the black woman is to the country. The sacrifices made by the women in this book are overwhelmingly crucial to the lives of each person on the plantation. 
where did you where did you need to pull from the invoke this truth within the prophets? Um, many sources. Um, one of the things that I wanted to be conscious of when I was writing this book was if I'm going to be writing about people whose identities I don't share. So Black women, for example, we share the identity of Blackness, but our genders are different and the ways we show up in the world are different. Then it has to be as authentic and real and full and rounded and human as possible. Not to say that I have to make all of the women characters angelic, mm -hmm. because that's a different sort of trap. Making women, um, putting them up on this pedestal and giving them this much room to move. But they had to be full and rounded and real and different from one another. They could not all be the same. Um, you, you should be able, if I erased all the names, to tell who is who in that book because they're so different. And um, one character, I, I, I had to have at least one woman character who was not concerned with men mm -hmm. so that she could pass the Bechtel test. So that it wasn't always revolved around Samuel and Isaiah. That character, as you know, is Sarah, who's like, look, I, I don't care. They didn't do anything wrong or bad to me, but that's not where my focus is. Right. Um, so I drew from, first of all, I am a, a student of Black women writers. Mm -hmm. The writers who have the most profound impact on me as a writer are Black women. Um, if it's not Zora Neale Hurston, then it's Alice Walker. If it's not Alice Walker, then it's uh, Gloria Naylor. If it's not Gloria Naylor, it's Octavia Butler. And above all, it's Toni Morrison, mm, yep. um, who I will forever be chasing because to me, she is the greatest writer who ever lived. And that's the standard that I want to eventually reach. And you're, 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 you're there, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? And even if you're not there, you are like, Standing at the door, the like door is open, much. your foot is in the door. Like what you have done with this book uh, from beginning to end, it's rare to to read a book and you want to say, okay, after I'm done, I'm going to reread it. It is one of the most well-written books I have ever read. And I really, truly wow. feel like Tony and, and James was just sitting there just like looking behind your shoulder, just saying, look at what he's doing. Or, <laughs> or maybe, doing. maybe grabbed your hand and did it. I don't know. <laughs> Listen. Something. Listen, yes, I, I, I feel like one of my great regrets is that I could not finish this book before um, Ancestor Morrison transitioned because I wanted her to read it. I wanted her honest opinion about it. And I was I was hoping that she would see that there was some value in it. Um, but maybe she I, I'm hoping that she does from wherever she is in the universe, that she is um, pleased with what I did. Oh, I'm so sure about it. Mm -hmm. Like maybe a thousand percent <laughs> sure about it. So um, breastfeeding is a life-sustaining method. And in your novel, Maggie is ordered to nurse Ruth's child in order to sustain the life of their own while contributing to the degradation of that Black body. Your work challenges the reader to wrestle with autonomy and what it means for Black people to consistently be denied that pleasure and desire and right to be in one's own body and do with what they want. Will you speak more, more on that and what you were doing within the book? It's so ironic, right, that we're in this period now where the U.S. Supreme Court is about to snatch that right out of the hands of um, people who can become pregnant, um, women, tr trans men, um, non-binary people, um, a, a group of, I'm not even going to say nine, I don't know how many conservatives are now on the Supreme Court, I can't keep up with them, um, I think it's like six or seven, six I think, six people are about to determine what you can do with your own body. Right. Um, and so one of the fascinating things in writing this book was recognizing how these pathologies have never gone away. Names have changed. Um, maybe scenery has changed. 
but the underlying pathologies are still there. This idea that I have to have dominion over you in order to feel powerful. Um, and I think that's actually the, um, the downfall of humankind is this desire for dominion over others. And I, I, and I make a distinction between um, power, which is dominion over others, and empowerment, which is dominion over myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like empowerment. I would never want power. I do not want power over anyone else except me. And of course, the ability to defend myself from somebody that wants to do me harm. So when I'm thinking about Maggie in the scenes that you're talking about, I'm thinking about the ways our ancestors resisted in ways that were never really documented or, or, or erased from the, um, the larger narrative because um, the powers that be don't want us to understand or realize or recognize that our ancestors weren't passive. We weren't these happy darkies picking cotton and singing songs. We were rebelling at every moment. I, like all, I, my research revealed that there was a rebellion all the time and that's why they were so shook. These, these um, white overseers and masters were so shook because they understood, they understood deep down inside that whatever the rationalization was, what they were doing was absolutely wrong. And because it was wrong, they, were, they felt, oh my God, they're gonna rise up against us. They're gonna behead us. They're gonna do all the things we did to them to us. That was Thomas Jefferson's worry. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so um, Maggie sort of steps into that framework. I'm not free the way I wanna be free, but I'm gonna get free in the ways that I can. And one of those ways is I refuse to be the cow for this woman who's pretending to be my friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really love Maggie's character. I um, want to be her when I grow up. It was definitely, I, I, it, it, it made me really want to like see this book become a, a graphic novel or a television show or something that mm -hmm. we can be like, okay, this person I want to take on and just reading her and how she was just so complex uh, in her, in her ways of how she saw the world. It, it really just moved me. I, she was definitely one of my, my, my favorites. And I know you talked about, we were talking about autonomy of the body and it makes me think about, um, Timothy and the and the moments that he has with oh, yeah. Isaiah and Samuel, yeah. and how in his mind you have that 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 period of him having those questions being asked to Isaiah if he wants to do certain things. What's your favorite color? As if you know, <laughs> like as if he feels like, oh, I can actually speak for myself, knowing that that is truly not the case, and how you know. Uh, and how it just makes, I guess, Timothy feel like, you know, I'm just waiting for an answer when in actuality, like he's waiting for you to tell him what he should be because he's trying to protect his body. Right. right? And it's that constant, even as something as simple of, as, of asking a question of what is your favorite color, not understanding, like, I don't know what is going to come behind this question if I answer incorrectly to where you feel like I should be. So it definitely, you know, tackled all of those issues in regards to autonomy all the way through, uh, all the way through this book. And especially when, with that moment of him painting Isaiah, it made me think about uh, artists like uh, Titus Kafir or mm. Kehinde Wiley, yes. like what they've been doing with their art. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to talk to them, especially since releasing this book, but I would want to hear that conversation on what it is to see black people in terms of where they were in history. Cause Titus Kafir has that one piece where uh, he's whitewashed this famous piece, right? And there is an enslaved black boy in the middle that is the one that he leaves. And there's this whole conversation about what it means for this child to have been in this painting. And I think that that conversation between you two would be perfect in regards to this book. We should make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I know that Kehinde Wiley read The Prophets, um, but I don't know him. So I, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to him and ask him what he thought about it. And um, to your earlier point about if this ever becomes a, a movie or TV show or something like that, 
in my head, you know who plays Maggie? Who's who? that? Anjanu Ellis. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. We love so good. Yes. Everything she does. Goosebumps. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Yes. Yes. That's that first scene of of Maggie like breast like breastfeeding other people's children really ticked me off. Like it touched it pissed me off to no end because I breastfed for a year. And I know that feeling. I know how you don't have control over your own body just because you know you're trying to sustain like your child and for you to sustain the colonizer is like right. self-deprecating yes it it hurt my heart and i think that was the first time that i realized i'm like i can never i i cannot put down this book i have to finish it till the end or this ends me one or the other <laughs> I was like, must hold on. <laughs> each each character uh, in this book was multi-layered, complicated, rich, and messy. And Amos, mm. an enslaved man, was a depiction of a man who we see early on begin to do this shift into anti-blackness when convincing Paul to allow him to preach to the enslaved people. What, if any, were the difficulties in writing the part? he would play in the story and how did he first appear to you when you initially put him down on paper um amos was a difficult character to write because as a black queer person i had to go into the mind of someone who was going to practice homophobia and and sort of give them their reasons for doing it without legitimizing their homophobia. Mm. So that was a difficult line to walk. Um, and he, he, he appears as I originally imagined him as sort of the um, antagonist. If not, he, I don't see him as the villain of the book. I see Paul as the actual villain of the book, but I do see Amos as an antagonist because he, for him, to him, he has a really good reason for what he's doing. And he loves Samuel and Isaiah. He actually loves them, Isaiah in particular. Um, but he thinks he's doing the right thing for somebody else that he's trying to protect. Mm -hmm. So he's in this kind of um, Sophie's choice position mm -hmm. in a way um, and making a really bad choice out of all of the bad choices he has to make. Um, so yes, he was a, a difficult character to um, to imagine, to get down on the page. And his name was originally Silas when I f first wrote him. Um, but he was always going to be that preacher character who uses Christianity as a way to try to force Samuel and Isaiah to be something that they're not. Mm -hmm. So one of our book club members uh, mentioned, well, uh, we were talking about Dante Stewart book, uh, Shouting in the Fire. Amazing, amazing book. It prepared us for reading your creation. Mm -hmm. um, that her problem was, was not with Christianity, but white Christianity. You have solidified the power of colonization and the intergenerational trauma that it created where the people that have been continuously been mistreated manifested their rage in different ways. And the pain that comes with it doesn't just disappear because someone passes legislation. Right. You've given us permission to feel rage, and yet there was love in your writing by validating Black people's suffering. So, Robert, what in what ways do you think love and rage are the healing balm for Black people? Woo! That is a great question. Um, well, I know that the constant slights, the small pricks, the um, um, repetitive images of Black um, degradation and Black death and Black murder and the constant um, uh, refrain of black people being told, well, black on black crime, well, um, you guys are inferior. That begins to take its toll. And Baldwin said to be black in this country is to be in a constant state of rage because you know they're lying 
They're lying and they're manipulating uh, their, their reality, media and other forms to make the lie seem truthful. Mm-hmm. And because um, in America, lies are so affectionate. And I say this in the book, people love the lie. Um, mm-hmm. they, the truth hurts. And so they're like, I don't want the truth. I want the thing that makes me feel good. And the lie makes me feel good. Um, but at the same time, when you know it's a lie, for some for some of us, when you know it's a lie, it it punches you in the stomach. And that is the rage. And that rage has to come out. And as an artist, for me, I have to get it out on the page. Mm. That's where the rage come out. So the rage was really important because I was angry at a lot of the things that I was writing in this book. A, a lot of the conditions, a lot of the things that these characters had to endure and things of that nature. And at the same time, I had to recognize the flaws of the human being. Mm-hmm. That all of us, anybody who has power is going to act in these despicable ways. Because power does something to the human psyche that it just corrupts us. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any situations where someone was given absolute power and behaved benevolently. They may may have thought they were behaving, you know, in a good way, but they were absolutely not behaving that way. So I had to recognize that and say, well, what's the, what's the healing part of that? What's the thing that would make maybe shake someone from that delusion um, to move them past that um, dehumanization to something um, freer and, more beautiful. And the only thing that I think that has the power to do that is love. And so even as I'm writing these characters that I find despicable, like Paul and James and Ruth and Timothy, I couldn't hate them. Um, a writer should never hate their characters. Mm-hmm. You don't have to love them. Right. You shouldn't hate them because you have to find the humanity in them. So I had to find the humanity in each of those characters. And that is an act of love. So love shows up, I think, in a million different ways in this book, and it's intentional. And I I hope to always write with um, being realistic about situations, but also keeping in the center of it love so that I don't lose my humanity too. I'm glad that you said that, um, especially the part about um, the humanity and believing the lie, because it makes me think back. uh, We spoke to KSA not too long ago. Y'all know all my friends. Yes, we do. That's how we got to you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but we we spoke with him and, you know, he's been revised. He's revised his work. And, you know, he has been really talking about what it is to revise, not just the written word you know, to make it sound better, but to really reckon with the things that no longer work, that are not only no longer beneficial for yourself, but beneficial for everyone. And like you were talking about someone who might have all benevolent power, they will never make the right choice because even having all power in itself needs revision where you're like, all power to all the people. It can't just be within within myself, right? right? So, you know, with with that in mind, it really caused you to really look at the text that you have written and say, okay, you know, all of the all of these characters are flawed in different ways for different reasons. What would it take for them to reach that state of revision? And we 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 see them wrestle with that as well. But I think one of the powerful things about literature in itself is that even though we might be reading a story of fiction, it makes us do a reflection and look ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, is there something that I have to work out that no longer works for me? And I think that that is the most powerful thing about your book, mm-hmm. because even though this might be historical fiction, it's things that we're still de- dealing with to Today. this day. And what does that revision, what does that work, that necessary work look like um, that we need to meet as we are in this state of of the United States, right? United and States. Um, so doing that work, um, which leads me to our next question, which is Ruth 
uh, told Timothy that they changed the names of the slaves so they can strip them of their power and identity. What do you want to address in this false idea of what ownership is and how it is translated into privilege today? Um, Sonia Renee Taylor talks a great deal about the white supremacist delusion um, and the ways in which it functions to um, falsely give um, a person a sense of self, a sense of self-worth. Um, and, you know, Toni Morrison said in her famous interview, if I take your race away, what do you have left? You know, if, if you can only be tall because someone is on their knees, then you have a very serious problem. And so that's, that's the, the whole issue right there. What is it that you are lacking that you have to turn me into a nigger to make yourself feel better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That you have to turn a woman into a bitch to make yourself feel better. That you have to turn a gay person into a faggot or a dyke to make you feel better. Like, what is that? And when will you have the courage to fix that? To find out what it is and to heal it? Because you're not just doing me us, other marginalized people, a disservice. You are stripping your own humanity down to nothingness. So is unless is that what you want? You want this false humanity um, and parading it around like it's it's the goal? You, you want to be, um, I can't even say an animal because animals have, uh, you know, are, are sometimes um, more humane. Right. So like, what is it you want to be? Let's 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 be honest, you know. So that is kind of like that sort of investigative work that's going on there in the prophets is what does it mean um, to truly be human, um, and who gets who gets to decide, and who gets to call the name? And um, Baldwin was very good at this when he was saying, "I'm not the nigger baby. You are." Like he like it's like. Everything you're saying about me is really you telling me about yourself. Yeah. And that is kind of what I'm, I'm reckoning, reckoning with there in, in the prophets. And in, in the first chapter, you, you know, like how you say, what, it, what do you want to be when, what do you want to be when you don't even know who you are? <laughs> right. You don't even know who you are. Right. So there's no way for you to establish who that you think that you know who you are when you have yet to go through the fire and the, and burn off the things that no longer work. And let me tell you, we are in this moment right now where the powers that be do not want their children to know who they are on purpose. Let's let's take critical race theory out of the school curriculum. You don't even know what critical race theory is. Number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, what you're really telling me is let's take let's remove from the record all the horrors that me and my people committed so that our children would think we're angels. Mm -hmm. right. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what you're, you're really saying. And so here we are in this very moment, having this very same argument. How many centuries after the founding of this country? Mm. Yes. So Marlon James said that this novel is what the American novel is should do and can be. I have personally called your writing otherworldly. Like mm -hmm. when I was telling Veronica, like, see, I'm like shaking because I'm like, I truly believe that you had the ancestors, you tapped into them like I've never seen. How was that process to be able to write with so much love, respect and adoration to those who have come before us? the best experience about writing this novel was feeling as though I was communing and channeling ancestors mm -hmm. and the ancestral energies. I, most of this book was written during the witching hour or the magic hour, 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, I worked three part-time jobs, undergrad, two part-time jobs in grad school, and then a full-time job after I graduated. So I would write, as Toni Morrison said, at the edges of the day. So I would go to sleep at like nine o'clock, wake up at three in the morning, write for an hour to go back to sleep and then get up to go to work. And so um, that is the most quiet time actually in Brooklyn where I, where I live in Bed-Stuy. Three o'clock in the morning, it is so quiet. 
And it's so quiet that you start to think that you can hear things. Mm -hmm. And so now maybe I was actually hearing things. And so um, the, the parts of the book that I, I, first of all, I can't reread the book because now all I can see are the flaws. But when I'm asked to read certain sections of it for events and such, some of those sections, I, I say, wow, I don't remember writing this. And that those are the moments that I think, okay, that was the ancestors channeling. And I, I love that piece of it. And that's wonderful. And that's the part of it that makes me feel like maybe this is the work that I should be doing. Maybe this is my purpose. And maybe I'm loved by those people who came before me and who sacrificed and survived so that I could be here doing this work. Mm, right. Yeah. It was definitely like, I I think I've read each of your chapter at least two or three times before oh I can move on. Like wow. I was saying, Veronica, I was t- it's, it was taking me so long, twice as long. I was reading it and listening to it. I was like, I was in it to win it, but <laughs> I, I was doing it because I don't want to miss a thing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to miss the message. I don't want to miss the word because it was so very important. Oh, and you, you delivered on the word. Yes, you did what it needed to do. And uh, yeah, so Toni Morrison, she is noted for saying that she didn't want her stories to be centered with the white gaze. The idea that the point of view for the reader would default to the perspective of a white person. She thereby created the knowledge of space for us to thrive and bloom when we begin to center stories with the perspectives of black people being that the publishing world is that of a dominated white space. How did you know and what steps did you take for you to be at peace knowing that your book would get to the proper, get the proper attention it did at your publishing company? You know, that was one of my greatest fears after finishing the, the, um, the draft that I, my agent and I eventually sent out to publishers was that I was going to get requests to make this book um, fall more in line with the tastes of a particular kind of white gaze. So it needs to be, there needs to be um, a white savior, for example, or, you know, the good white person or or something to that effect, because um, white readership, white audiences have been so conditioned to um, not be able to identify with the humanity of anybody else outside of the white race and therefore needing an anchor like a white savior to to get them invested in stories about people other than white people. Mm -hmm. But I did not want to write that story because it's been written a million times. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes them feel good and they like it and that's wonderful, fine. That was, that's not the kind of writer I am and not the kind of work that I wish to write. Um, so I was terrified that um, giving, giving it over to someone else, they would, I, now I'm contractually obligated to start to change it in ways that did not suit me. But the universe being the place of justice that it can be sometimes, um, led it to Putnam with Sally Kim um, mm-hmm. and Sally Kim, only wanted the words to be um, as clear and as elevated as they possibly could be in my own voice, from my own perspective. She was not concerned with um, uh, changing narratives so that white people might feel more comfortable or or, or something to, to that effect, or that it would gain a wider readership if we just did this little tweak for, the, for, for white people. She was not interested in that. She was interested in ensuring that the work was as good as we could, the two of us could possibly make it as it was from my own perspective. And um, that was luck. That was a lot of luck. And it was also a lot of gut feeling um, because during the process of meeting with different publishers, there were some that were kind of like, mm, could you do something a little bit more with these white characters um, because they were looking at it from a, a marketing and sales perspective, which, you know, is fair, but that wasn't what this work was and it's not what I wanted it to be. And I 
um, and it is one of the reasons why um, Sally Kim was who I decided to go with because she saw the vision and understood it. So congratulations on being a part of a major contribution to American history, which is 1619 Project. Oh, yes. Um, with your piece, Freedom is Not Myself Alone. How did this collaboration come about with Nicole Hannah-Jones? I recently discovered that um, the incomparable Nicole Hannah-Jones is a neighbor of mine. Ooh, wow, I, we did not know we were neighbors, but we're neighbors. Um, but how it worked out was um, one of the editors of the book reached out to my agent and asked me if I wanted to participate in it. And all he had to say was three words, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm -hmm. And I was like, absolutely. What do you need from me? Mm -hmm. And um, I had the pleasure of meeting her. Um, at the 1619 um, book release party. I met her. I met Sonia Sanchez. Yes, you did. Cordia Rankin, oh. Terry McMillan. Mm. Oh my, it was just like, I was meeting legend after legend after legend. It was just like, oh my goodness. Um, but Nicole Hannah-Jones's scholarship, the work that she does and what she's endured for telling the truth. This is the least that I could have done um, to to sort of help her get um, this perspective of history, this understanding of history out into the world. And so it was an honor and a pleasure to um, to have contributed to, to this um, 1619 project, which has some of the greatest writers in the world writing in it. I mean, they have Honoré Fanon Jeffers. They, like, it's, it's like everybody is in that book. And right. so, um, and I, I got this little story in there and I'm just up against these other two great people, um, Michelle Alexander and um, Dwayne Betts. And it's just like, gosh, I'm so grateful for that. Every time I get a chance to listen to her speak, you know, I make sure that I that I can because what she has done and continues to do uh, for not just black people, but for our nation uh, is tremendous and hard work. Right. And for you to be included on that, that project, it speaks volumes to who she wants to have included in the taking care of our nation, right? Yeah. And to making sure that we uh, secure a place in, in, in our history and, and doing whatever it takes to move this mission along for people to understand that again, we need to go back and revise and and be a better country. We we have the opportunity to be better. Um. So as we come to a a, a close of our questions, one of my uh, we have two big questions followed okay. by another set of two questions. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, so four questions. Um. <laughs> we know that you love Wonder Woman. <gasps> And so you know Stephanie, <laughs> Stephanie Williams. Ready. Look at that. Look at that. Always ready. Stephanie oh. Williams and Vita Ayala are the writers for the new DC comic series Nubia and the Amazons. And for you being a comic connoisseur in all things Wonder Woman, what does this mean for the future of Wonder Woman brand, as well as the possibilities of seeing yeah. more characters of color taking the lead in narratives where they were only an extra? You know, I'm actually astounded by DC Comics right now. Um, with the change of leadership, um, there are, there's a woman, there, there are women in charge, like a, a, a black woman, a white woman. And there's, a, there's been a complete shift in how their stories are told, who's included in those stories. We've been waiting for a Nubia comic book since the 70s mm. and this is the first time that she has her own comic book and i credit the leadership for seeing that the world is bigger than just um this incessant like they, there used to be in the comic industry or there still is in a in a uh in a sense this idea that only white men read comic books mm -hmm. and so you gotta you gotta relentlessly cater to the white men otherwise your books won't sell 
And I'm so happy that DC took this chance, did the research and found out, first of all, that's not true. And second of all, that there's an audience out there hungry for these books like, like Nubia and the Amazons. It is, I'm so glad I'm, I'm 50 years old and it took, I've been reading comic books since I was four. This is the first time where I feel like, wow, I'm seen. Um, the, 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 these books are speaking to such a wider array of people. Um, Vita and Steph with this book that um, uh, Aletha's doing the artwork on, it's just astounding. They introduced transgender Amazons. Like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm just happy to be a comic book fan right now, especially in the Wonder Woman universe. I don't know if y'all read um, Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons. We haven't read it yet. It's in my it's in my queue. Is it you? I didn't know about it until you until you mentioned it and you showed the cover and I was you took us on a journey of going and picking it up and talk and almost like an hour long conversation about this book. So it was just like, okay, I need to get this because if he just hype, I know this book is. Let good. me tell you, Kelly Sue DeConnick and Phil Jimenez. If that's not the book of the year, I don't know what is. Mm. It, it outstanding. So so I have. Wonder Woman Historia of the Amazons. I have Nubia and the Amazons, and I have the main Wonder Woman book. There's a Wonder Girl book because Wonder Girl is from Brazil. Get right. into it. Right. Like, ah! I, don't know what else, I don't know what to do with myself right now as a Wonder Woman fan. This is what I've always dreamed of, and I'm so glad that DC had the vision to do this. Would you, would you ever write? Like, we know that Roxane Gay, Ta-Nehisi wrote for Black Panther. It is my dream to one day write a comic book. I have to get this second novel out of my system first before I can do that. And I can't multitask. I can't write the novel while writing a comic book. I have to do one project at a time. But it is my dream to write a comic book one day. And one, if, if, if they gave me the chance to write Wonder Woman, my God. Mm-hmm. Please do. <laughs> so before Beyonce's and the Rihanna's of the world, there was a... Miss Jackson. <laughs> so while you were while you were breaking your mother's dining room chair, little baby, <laughs> little baby Denny was being born in the world. My first compact disc. Compact disc was Janet Jackson's All for You. So and I was 14 years old and I was mesmerized by this lady. Um, she is the epitome of like empowerment and radical change. How has her life work influenced you? and how you moved in the world. Let me tell you something. I didn't learn about autonomy or understand it, like that that it was something that I could embrace until Janet Jackson's Control album, Mm. where she talked about her own, coming into her own and having her own autonomy. I didn't really think about how I could um, be a political being um, and, encounter or, or engage sociopolitics until Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. So Janet Jackson opened up worlds for me in ways that, and, and for, for millions of others, in ways that she doesn't get enough credit for. Right. Like we, we go, um, we say Madonna, um, we'll talk about Michael, we'll talk about all these other people, but Janet's impact is so profound. We could not, like you said, there could be no Beyonce, no Rihanna, no Aaliyah, um, no Normani. Mm-hmm. Yes. Janet is the blueprint for a lot of other careers. Britney, Christina Aguilera. It's like the fact that they have tried to destroy and erase her contributions is one of the greatest tragedies in the music industry. And I, I'm hoping um, that at some point, all the damage that people have tried to do to her career gets undone and we celebrate her in the ways that she deserves to be celebrated because she is remarkable. Yes, um, she is. And I have loved her since, since even before Good Times. I loved her when she was um, on the Jackson specials dancing with with Michael and 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 the rest of them um on the CBS specials that the Jacksons used to have. So shout out to Janet Jackson, man. Shout out. <laughs> shout out to Janet. Have you met her? Twice. 
And get this. So I met her once in 1997 when she released The Velvet Rope, which is my favorite Janet Jackson. That's mine, hands yes. down. Um, and then I met her again when she released her um, her book, her um, her memoir. Mm-hmm. And that was like 10, like 10 years later. She remembered my name. <laughs> after one after one meeting, she was like, Robert, right? How? You have met a million people. How do you know my name? Because you are Robert Jones Jr. That's how. That's how. She knew when you walked in the room, I'm going, I'm going to see him again. I need to remember his name. And he's going to be a National Book Award finalist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we if you all have any questions for Robert, go ahead and put them in the chat. Um so we we have uh two last questions and one of them is it that we are coming to a close on 2021 and soon you will be celebrating your book anniversary next month. As you reflect on all that has happened this year with the prophets, what crosses your mind when you think about the 14 years that have led up to this moment? Ooh. Um, I think of some good things and I think of some bad things. Mm. The bad things, which may be not so bad, um, were all the naysayers. The people who told me, for example, um, why do you always have to write about race? Um, white people who said this to me, who didn't realize that they too were writing about race because they think of white as default human status. Mm-hmm. Um I think about that, but then I think also about the good things like the the community that has surrounded me, Disha Filia, Kiese Lehman, Dante Stewart, Donnie Walton, Honore Fanon Jeffers, um, uh, Mateo Ascarapur, all of these writers, Maurice Carlos Ruffin, who have, I can, I can keep going, Tarana Burke, Um, All of these writers who have come around me and surrounded me with love and nothing but support. And um, that has been probably the greatest gift to me as a writer is knowing that other writers see me and see the value in my work um, and don't see me as competition, see me as community. Mm. Um, That, I can't tell you how restorative that is, how healing that is how loving that feels. Um, so of those 14 years, those two things stand out to me most, but the most important is that community that has been formed. And shout out to my agent, PJ Mark, my publicist, Katie McKee, my editor, Sally Kim, and the whole team at Putnam who have done nothing but ensure that this book got into as many hands as possible and that the message um, was as um, rigorous and as um, intentional Mm -hmm. as I could possibly make it. So shout out to them as well. So our last question that we ask everybody when they come on the show, uh, when Disha came on, she flipped it. So you have permission (laughs) to do whatever you will with it. Mother, mother earth, mother earth have flipped it. She is the reason why we are talking to you today. Yes. This, this year is because of her. Mm -hmm. And, um, so with that said, our question is what are your top five favorite books of all time or, or the top five books that you're more excited about? And just because for me, your top three Janet songs. Okay. (laughs) So my top five current favorite books of all time. Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. Mm. Okay. The Temple of My Familiar by Alice Walker. Mm. Mama Day by Gloria Naylor. Now see the the Toni Morrison one is hard because there's so many Toni Morrison books. Currently, my favorite is Paradise by Toni Morrison, but that changes all the time. Sometimes <laughs> it's The Bluest Eye, sometimes it's Sula, sometimes it's Song of Solomon, sometimes it's Beloved. Um, and number five, gosh. Um, We're so sorry. 
but not really. <laughs> Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. That's my current five. That's my favorite. My top three Janet songs. Got Till It's Gone. Oh, yes. Empty. Those are both from The Velvet Rope. Yes. And Control. And there you go. That's a solid list right there. Books, music, you heard it here first. Um, so we got a question in the chat. Uh, our question is, they want to know, this is from Tony. What is the significance of the title of the, of the book and naming chapters? Uh, was naming the chapters deliberate to be likened as the books of the Bible? Yes. Um, the name The Prophets came very late in the process. Um, the book was originally entitled Sing Hannibal Bear Witness. Um, and then it was called Plantation Lullabies after the Michelle and DeGayo Cello album. Then it was called The Book of Samuel. And I eventually landed on The Prophets after I realized that each of these characters, like prophets in the Bible, had something to say about humankind and the ways in which we behave or should behave or should not behave. And that was when I realized when um, when Amos's character was coming through and the ways in which Paul and Amos utilized Christianity to sort of um, further oppress um, that this book was in some ways in conversation with the Bible in a critical way right. and that I could reclaim some of those um, biblical scriptures, um, remix them, criticize them. Um, broaden them um, in way. If I if I if I titled chapters in certain ways, it would maybe make you think about biblical chapters in in, in a different way. So um, yes, that was intentional and, and something that came like sort of midway in the process. You know, um, I know we we mentioned Dante's book, but I feel like Disha uh, Dante's book, um, Brian's book. Mm -hmm. All of all of the books that we've read this year really helped prepare us for the prophets right. and dealing with different subject matters on them, especially with Dante's mm -hmm. and and the and the Christian part of it of really looking into what it means uh, for you to dissect those things and pull away from uh, the white supremacist idea of of Christianity and what it has done um, to people. And and wow. and also just the colonization throughout oh, the yeah. entire world because of it, and um, just being able to really say, is this something that I want to be part of? And as Dante takes the church to task, especially in regards to uh, the um, homophobic thread that especially is deep within the black church, like what does that mean? Uh, for your church and for your people. Um, so those books really, I highly recommend everybody when you read Robert's book that you go back and you look at our list and you read those other people that he talked about being in a community with because all of their works are connected even though they never wrote these books together in the same room. <laughs> Shout out right? to Brian Broom too. Oh my oh. God, my goodness. That man right there. <laughs> he, he did it. He definitely did it. Um, Robert, thank you so sure. much. Thank you so for much for spending this hour with us. We greatly appreciate it. We hope we didn't bore you too much with our questions. No, your questions <laughs> we, were incredible. We we really hope that we can continue on with this relationship and whatever else that you have coming out, be it a book, comic book, movie, um, just a thought that you wrote down on a piece of paper. You want to share it with us. Go ahead, just hit us up. I volunteer as tribute. I'll read it. <laughs> well, whatever you write, whatever you write, we will be there. And uh, we are again are grateful for you to to share in this moment of our our last podcast of the year. Yes, thank you, thank you so much. We 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 feel very like spoiled, and you know, like we're walking like in greatness because you have given us this opportunity to talk to you, to be in your mind, to be in a conversation. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you for all the love and the continued work that you are doing for everybody. So we can all be 
We can all be free. Yes. We can all be free. Thank you, sir. You are too kind. And I am so grateful and thankful that you asked me to be here. This was so, um, so wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You take care, okay? You too. All right. Bye. Good night, everyone. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast and listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.